Welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast that would absolutely be banned by Moms for Liberty, especially after today's episode. Here we are at episode 11 of Bitchy History, and today is not only the second of two Pride episodes, but it's also a very special episode because it's the first time we've had a guest on the show. Today we're joined by Amanda Tempson from Yester Queers to talk specifically about the history of drag in the United States. Amanda, I'll let you introduce yourself before we get started. I didn't know I was going to be your first guest. That's so exciting. Brand new. Uh, first one. Never done it before on this show. Amazing. That explains a lot about all the things that just happened. <laughs> the homophobic recording video that we had to deal with today. Yeah. Just a moderate amount of technical homophobia. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, my name is Amanda. I am a writer and a television producer and an avocational public historian of queer history, which means I don't have a degree in queer history, but I know a lot about it, and I spend a lot of time educating about it. Yeah, and you know what? You do not have to have a degree in history. I do not gatekeep. I don't gatekeep. The true, right? it's true. But you do have to know how to do research and research, research and check your sources. <laughs> yes, you do need to do that and be able to accept when you're wrong and somebody corrects you. Which, as we have found. Uh, avocational history, male historians on TikTok can't do that. They they have no interest in being corrected, apparently. But that's a story for a different podcast. I'm just glad the Party City helmet is optional because I don't think I would look good in that. Yeah, I'm not sure I could pull that off. I really don't, <laughs> I don't think so. So we're talking specifically about the history of drag in the United States. It's not a art form that is solely an American art form, obviously, but we do have a very strong presence of it in our history and in our culture here in the United States, everything up from its origins to, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race, right? It's a big thing here. Mm -hmm. um, and so what exactly is drag, if you could explain it to us? Uh, so drag is both an art form and a political statement. It's the act of highlighting or exaggerating traditionally feminine or masculine um, features as a means of both celebrating and subverting gender expression. It's not just men wearing dresses. Um, it is in fact distinct from cross-dressing, mostly because of the community and performance components of drag. Cross-dressing is usually something that's done um, alone for an individual to sort of explore their gender expression, mm -hmm. whereas drag is usually done as part of a community or part of a performance. Right. Yeah. It's obviously it's a big, dramatic, there's a lot of pageantry to drag. Whereas if cross-dressing is done by yourself, that's by yourself. Or if it's done to pass, like, like a woman mm -hmm. trying to, to, to join the military by dressing up like a man or something, it's a very different thing. You're, you, do, you don't want to draw attention to the fact that you're not the, the, the right gender, right? Yeah, um, and cross-dressing is, um, cross is not generally performative. You know, yeah. drag, drag is um, done for the experience of other people as part of a community, as part of um, a performance for an audience or for other members of the community. Whereas, you know, cross-dressing is an individual choice for a variety of reasons, which is a whole different episode that hopefully you'll invite me back for. <laughs> I, yeah, I am. I have, a, I have another set of notes set up for that. So we'll uh, <laughs> we do another episode on that uh, maybe next month. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how the recording goes on this one, right? now. <laughs> I think I'll definitely bring you back. I definitely bring you back. <laughs> uh, so we talked a lot about this already. You know, we were meeting on Zoom about this episode. Uh, and, you know, you were telling me some of the stuff I definitely did not know about the history of kind of the origins of drag, where it got its start here in the U.S. Uh, so if you could kind of 
go into that a little bit? Cause this is definitely, this is why I brought you on. Cause this is not my area <laughs> at all, honestly. So I love the history of drag is actually fascinating. So of course it has its roots in theatrical traditions all around the world. So ancient Greece, Shakespearean theater, Kabuki theater, you see a lot of um, male performers playing female roles. But drag in the U.S. actually has its roots in Washington, D.C. in the late 1800s with the first queen of drag, who is a formerly enslaved man named William Dorsey Swan, who held parties that were then just called drags. Now we would call them drag balls, um, which were like big, fancy parties where he and all of his friends, most of whom were also formerly enslaved men, would wear their finest women's clothes. Um, so it's really, you know, like almost everything that is awesome and amazing in culture in the U S it is rooted in the black experience in the United States and specifically in the experience of formerly enslaved men in the nation's capital right after the civil war. Yeah. And that, I think that's a really interesting thing that so many of the things that have caused these sort of culture freakouts, these, these, uh, you know, this, all this anger, it always has been stuff that with its root in African-American culture, uh, like the anger about jazz when it came out as, you know, as devil music, the anger about rock and roll. It was all related to this, you know, these tensions of, of race. Uh, and so it's interesting that we're facing off against, you know, issues with drag now. Uh, and it, it all dates back to the same stuff. Everything is kind of wrapped up in this racial tension. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's just nothing new under the sun, I suppose. Um, yeah. And it just, yeah, it's the white supremacy of it all. Yeah, um, not not that I think that, like, the Tennessee drag ban or whatever, the people who wrote it have any idea what the history of drag is. I don't think they've done any research on this. They just kind of instinctually hate it because they hate everything fun. <laughs> I mean, yeah, basically. Well, they hate, they hate everything fun and they hate everything that is... Um, even a little bit subversive to this really rigid set of sort of, you know, Christian American values of like, what is a man and what is a woman and how do those two things uh, or how do those two genders interact? And like anything that doesn't fall into those neat little boxes is like, they can't make sense of it and they hate it. And it is therefore must be perverse and destroying all of our children. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we have, we've been dealing with this for a long time, there is this very strict enforcement through the law of these sort of, you know, heteronormative standards uh, in America. For all that we like to talk about, you know, America being about freedom, it really has not been. A, a freedom huge for portion. whom? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> freedom for who? Exactly. Um, well, I made this point several times on the show in the last few episodes about the Puritans, where the Puritans we're not here for freedom in a general sense. They were here for their freedom. Uh, yeah. Totally okay with creating a theocratic, you know, uh, situation in government as long as they were the ones creating the rules. Uh, and so really that's, honestly, it is very American, right? That's a very yeah. American idea to control people and make them do what you want. I want everyone to have the freedom to be exactly like me. That yeah. word does not mean what you think it means. Right. I don't think uh, I don't think you understand the concept at all. But that's sort of what's interesting about drag in the US, especially in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So William Dorsey Swan, um, you know, he was he was one of the first really like queer activists in the US and one of the first to really um go up against the the police and the sort of like governing restrictions around 
um, men gathering. And, you know, in his case, it was sort of like a two pronged problem, right? There was a bunch of black men gathering, which was, you know, frightening to people in Washington, D.C. And it was a bunch of black men gathering wearing dresses, which was a thing they just sort of couldn't get their heads around. Yeah. Um, You know, so he was really among the first um, who just kind of pressed those boundaries. But what's interesting is that Drag was not necessarily seen as a particularly perverse or weird thing up until like sort of right after World War One. Like certainly like there were, you know, laws that I know we're going to talk about about like cross-dressing and stuff. And William yeah. Dorsey Swan ended up being arrested a couple of times for um, uh, running a disorderly house, which is they thought he was running a brothel right. <laughs> instead of throwing a party. Um, but before World War One, the highest paid actor in the country was a female impersonator who we would now call, call a drag queen um, named Julian L. Tinge. And he was a white man. A, a white man? No! Um, of course. So, you know, but like female impersonation was very, very popular um, during the height of vaudeville. Um, you know, drag kind of made its way like from Washington, D.C., up the eastern seaboard into New York. Um, it was a huge part of the Harlem Renaissance. So like many things, it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't much of an issue until people started to decide that it was. And then suddenly it was this, you know, huge, perverse. Oh, my God, the children problem. Of course. Yeah. Sound familiar. Yeah. Sounds pretty familiar. Yeah. Uh, just keep finding that nothing is new. Nothing is new. Everything sounds, uh, you know, like something that happened a hundred years ago. Uh, which yeah. Is which in some ways <laughs> I find comforting because I can look back and be like, okay, we've been through this before. Here's how we got through it. So we can get through it. But on the other hand, I'm like, could we solve a new problem? Like could still, not still <laughs> not keep rehashing the same problem. <laughs> it would be nice. It would be uh, theoretically nice if we could just move past this and move on to something else. But no, no, they're not going to let us do that until I guess enough people die off in the older generations. But even then, that doesn't really stop it, right? I mean, um, but <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that. you were mentioning something. The the there was you know cross-dressing laws and like you said they didn't really apply to drag to to drag performers uh in any real meaningful way because in when you're on stage right when you're doing something that is a performance it's different than living your life wearing the wrong the wrong clothing uh for your you know quote unquote gender yeah uh but they did have a lot of impact on you know on the queer community in a general sense which of course the drag community was a big part of uh, even even if you have you know straight drag queens or or drag kings, which does happen on occasion, uh, and you know, was much more prevalent at the beginning of the century. Oh, of um, course, yeah. You know there are there is this is my like forever pet peeve. There is a photo. So if you Google William Dorsey Swan, you will get a photo that is attached to every single article about him, and it is not him. It is a performer named um, I think John Brown or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, John Gregory or Jack Gregory. Anyway, it's a performer in a vaudeville duo in Paris, and there are, like, promo shots. And not only is that performer not William Dorsey Swan, he's straight. <laughs> that is a straight man, as far as we know. He had a wife, and there is mm. no historical evidence that he was anything other than straight. Um, and so it's like it's sort of like a double... Um, 
it's like a, a double insult to call that William Dorsey Swan. Like right. it's not him. And the reason we know it's not him is because after William Dorsey Swan died, the um, police in his town burned his house to the ground, burned every single thing he owned. That tracks. Burned it completely. Tracks. <laughs> this is why we have no photos of William Dorsey Swan. Uh, um, also, this man that they keep attaching to all of these stories about him is a straight female impersonator in the vaudeville scene in the early 1900s. Right. Yeah. So it's kind it's of yeah. crazy. There's a lot of insults going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, just, like, it's just like this is the problem with Google, right? Where you Google it and this picture comes up and it's like. Right. You know, it's even attached to articles from like more reputable news sources. And if you read the teeny tiny caption of the photo, it'll say something like, you know, vaudeville performer in Paris in 1903. But like if the article is about William Dorsey Swan and there's a picture of a black man in a dress, like people are going to make that assumption. That it's right. And if somebody writes like a blog post about him and they just pull that picture without doing any research because people do that or make a TikTok or something like that, the picture just, you know, it, it self-propagates the the myth, Right. You have those uh, weird little, like, I have a couple of those sticking points about queer history where I'm just like, oh, it annoys me that this is annoying. It really is. It's so annoying, especially when, like you said, the cops burned all the pictures. And so we don't have any any real, you know, evidence of his life, which, uh, you know, it's always a firm reminder for viewer, for listeners, uh, this this podcast very much does ascribe to ACAB. Like it's just, there's no, there's no good things coming out of that area of the world. I'm sorry. <laughs> there is a, there is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful scholar named Channing Gerard Joseph. And he is the reason that we know as much as we do about William Dorsey Swan. Um, he has a book in the works called house of Swan. That's supposed to come out. I think sometime soon that I cannot wait to get my paws on to read that would be amazing yeah he he is the man who really did this deep dive and found out so much of this information to be able to sort of place him in drag history and really not just in drag history but at the at the beginning he is our our very first queen of drag that's amazing that's amazing i'm excited to read that too I'll, i'll definitely uh put up a link to it when it comes out on my website so people can uh people can I think get it got it. delayed by the pandemic it was supposed to come out a couple of years ago and every so often i'm just like is that out yet the pandemic was hard you're trying to work on a book and then you get stuck in your house and you just don't want to work on your book then right now now because you have all this time you don't want to get it done so, yeah <laughs> i don't know anything about that <laughs> meredith that was- no idea i've never i've never done that before my master's thesis wasn't like that at all that never happened um but yeah, so I just want to get. In, I want to talk a little bit about the cross-dressing laws specifically yeah. because of how it affected the, the queer community in this, and just because you know th- there's a lot of similarities to what's going on today with anti-drag bills and things like that. There's a lot of similarities, even though they weren't specifically targeting drag queens then. They're being used now for the same purpose. So yeah. you know, cross-dressing has a very long history in American America as well. We're definitely going to be doing an episode on that uh, in the future because there's just. So many cool stories about cross-dressing in American history. Um, but the laws that governed cross-dressing had this huge impact on everyone. Uh, the oldest one that we have in America was a uh, something called a masquerade law, which was passed in 1845 in New York. It specifically said that it was a crime to have your face painted, discolored, covered, or concealed, or be otherwise disguised while in a road or public highway. That was That was what it was, which is a very weird law. Um, the state bizarrely specific. <laughs> it is right. So the state originally intended the law only to punish rural farmers because they had taken to dressing up as Native Americans to oh. fight tax collectors. 
Uh, So there's a lot to unpack with that law, a lot. (laughs) Not the least of which is the fact that the most recent usage of this law uh, was in 2011. They actually used it to arrest Occupy Wall Street. Uh, protesters cool. who were wearing masks. Yeah. Cool. So there was, so they were still using it. Uh, it was, I think that all of those arrests got overturned by the judge. The judge was like, are you freaking kidding me? No, really? we're not using this. No. Um, so yeah. But the, uh, then in 1848, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio specifically passes another one, which is uh, a law forbidding a person from appearing in public in a dress not belong- belonging to his or her sex. So that kind of starts this watershed moment in America where suddenly throughout the 1850s, we start to see just a wave of these laws uh, being passed. And uh, there's a uh, Susan Stryker, who's an associate professor of gender and women's studies at the University of Arizona, uh, Mm -hmm. wrote about this, has written about this extensively. And she said that these laws represented a new development specific to gender presentation. So it was this issue that comes up where, uh, people are angry that things aren't heteronormative, right? Which is, what is it, what is it you say uh, that I said you should Oh, the heteros are upsetteros. Yeah, exactly. That needs to be on a shirt. It does. Uh, they were very <laughs> sure upsetteros. I, I did not come up with that. <laughs> it's got to be a shirt. Anyway, and then there's a, another book which I recommend, which is Arresting Dress by Claire Sears. And she writes about all of these cross-dressing laws in there. And I think one of the most interesting things she says is that it's not really about clothing, that it's... R- being passed to police indecency. It's a, it's a morality law and has these, these wide impacts. She says the law made anyone who didn't fit into the narrow definitions of what a man or woman should look like. They had to be extra vigilant. Uh, she notes even one time where a, someone was arrested because they were suspected as being a male crossdresser. They were taken into police custody and they were uh, basically strip searched. They were, you know, stripped off. Uh, and then they realized that this was in fact a biological woman and dropped the charges. Um, they sent her home with a certificate verifying her sex so I that she could show her papers for future <laughs> arrests. What's so you're too manish, you know? <laughs> absolutely hilarious is this, like nothing about that even is new to the end of the 19th no. century. Like, the very first case of people in authority not knowing what to do about gender nonconformity comes from the Virginia colony yep. in the 1600s, the middle of the 1600s. Mm-hmm. There's a person in the Virginia colony named both Thomas and Thomasine Hall, who dressed alternately in men's clothes and women's clothes, alternately did the work of men and women. Nobody could figure out Thomas slash Thomasine's gender, including Thomasine themselves. Like, they did not have a strong position on what their gender was. And mm, the first envy, so, I love it. Uh, lit- well, it's yeah. now, so they were hauled in, same thing, to be like examined by a panel of people to figure out what gender this person was. Um, we now understand that this person was probably intersex mm-hmm. uh, because they exhibited the physical sexual characteristics of both genders, but they could not figure out what to do with this person. So what they finally decided was that Thomas slash Thomasine had to wear the clothing of both genders all the time. So, so like, like a skirt and a shirt or whatever. Yeah, like had to wear like a dress, but like a men's hat at like, at, because they just couldn't figure out what to do. And the, and they had no way to, um, to parse this person who didn't really fit in either box because of how gender at all the like laws and like work and everything. So they, don't, they were like, you yeah. just always have to dress as both genders all the time. Just so you don't that confuse their solution. 
feel like it's more confusing, but that that's, you know, like I said, very, very strict heteronormative gender-based roles during that period of time. And it causes a lot of problems for somebody to, to go against those uh, at all. You know, it's, it's going to cause a, a major problem. And of course, like everything else in the U S the reason this whole thing came to a head is because, um, Thomas slash Thomasine was working on under an indentured contract mm-hmm. and the person who owned the plantation she was indentured to wanted to sell their contract. Um, mm-hmm. But the person buying the contract would not complete the transaction until they were certain of the gender of the indentured con- or indentured servant they were purchasing essentially. I have so, questions that are bad questions that I'm not going to ask about why they cared so much, but I'm just going to ostensibly, <clears throat> I mean, not to give white men any quarter here, but ostensibly the reason it was important is because they wanted to know which set of jobs to assign this indentured servant to. Like, is this a field person or like a housework person? God forbid they just figure out what job they're good at and let them do it. That's right. There it is. You couldn't possibly. Is obviously whatever physical characteristics you were born with determines what you're good at. Right. Of course. That's exactly how it works. Always. <laughs> anyway. So all that to say people in authority have never had a clue how no. to deal with people who are gender nonconforming. Right. And it's instead of just letting them be and let people, you know, live the way they want to live, dress the way they want to dress, they have to get themselves involved. They always do. It's just, you know, if it doesn't fit my narrow worldview of what society should look like, then, you know, just you're going to have to be forced into the into this narrow worldview uh, or we're going to send you to jail. It was one of the one of the stories of a woman who was arrested multiple times that Claire Sears talks to talks about with cross-dressing. Yeah. She was uh, in, in the 1870s. She's arrested more than 20 times for wearing male attire. Uh, and they you know keep sending her to jail, keep sending her to court, all of this stuff. And one time when she's in court, she just says, you can send me to jail as often as you please, but you can never make me wear women's clothing again, which I, you know, I love that for her i love that she's like no we're not doing this uh but again they just went after her continuously trying to make sure that she would not be uh you know allowed to live her life the way she wanted to live it which is there's a there's a long history um especially of butch lesbians and trans women Mm -hmm. uh, in this same situation being arrested multiple times and they're just like cool keep arresting me i don't care and again, the authorities have no idea what to do because like that's their one go-to move is we're going to arrest you and fine you and or imprison you. And they're like, great. Cool. Sure. <laughs> well, I think with women and during that time period, it's a uniquely bad opportun- bad attempt to stop them because women's lives already sucked. So like, what are you going to do? Make it worse by sending me to jail where I don't have to like see my husband or deal with men? Like you're going to send me to a woman's workhouse? <laughs> okay. <laughs> like... I- about that but (laughs) yeah probably not the women's workhouses were awful like they were terrible places but my point being like eh, if your life already sucks then you might as it's like well whatever sure yeah it's also it's it reminds me a little bit of the and again this was like clearly a position of privilege like were you in a position where you could repeatedly be arrested and imprisoned for a few days and that wouldn't you know destroy your life um but it reminds me a little bit of like sumptuary laws during um uh, in Elizabeth in Elizabethan England, like there's a giant fine for wearing purple velvet, but people who are rich enough still just paid the fine. 
you know? Right? <laughs> well, I, I remember somebody saying once, you know, that uh, when the punishment for a crime is is paying a fine, then really it's just a, fu- it's just a punishment for poor people, right? It's only exactly. to stop poor people from doing it. Uh, you know, if you, if you, you know, have to pay a ticket for double parking, well, okay, I can, I can afford the ticket. It doesn't bother me. So I'm just going to, I live in Los Angeles and I have definitely on occasion been like, is it worth it to me to maybe get a ticket for parking here? Is that like, is that a reasonable potential expense as opposed to circling for 20 more minutes to find a place to park? What's my, what's, how much is my time worth? Let's see. Yeah. <laughs> like, we'll see if I've got a good podcast on or a good, uh, or a good audio book, then I'll just keep circling. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I, it also helps that I, I, I physically cannot, uh, parallel park. So I'm, I'm a stereotype. I can't parallel park at all. So if I can't find a, a, a parking spot that, will allow me to pull in it, I just don't park I just leave it's you know. <laughs> amazing <laughs> I have in fact stood up someone on a date once simply because the place she invited me to only had parallel parking <laughs> possibly the most femme thing you've ever done I'm just gonna put <laughs> that text her. Her. I was like it's all parallel parking I can't I didn't really stand her up I did text her while I had left but Still, anyway, you had mentioned earlier that Swan got uh, arrested a couple of times for running a disorderly house, right? Yes. Uh, so what what is that exactly? So running a disorderly house was the, um, you know, sort of 19th, early 20th century way of saying being a madam or running a brothel. And mm-hmm. so the thing that was sort of interesting about um, Swan in particular is that what he was doing in holding these drag balls really kind of walked a line in terms of legality. Like it was not legal for this many men to wear dresses and be social. Uh, but there also weren't really great laws around it. You know, it's like, it's sort of a little bit difficult to prosecute. So they decided that charging Swan with running a disorderly house would like get him out of the business essentially of throwing these drags. Um, You know, and it did because this is the American justice system at work folks, by the way. So he was arrested early in the morning on January 1st, I think 1896 Mm because he had had a new year's Eve drag. His trial was on January 3rd. And it only lasted a few hours because by the end of January 3rd, he had been convicted and sentenced to 300 days in jail. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and the and I had to look up this quote from the judge because it just the I think the naked hatred that the judge exhibited during his trial is um, very applicable to the naked hatred that we're seeing now against drag performers all over the country. Because when he was sentenced, the judge said to him, I would like to send you where you would never again see a man's face and would then like to rid the city of other disreputable persons of the same kind. You know what it sounds like? That judge sounds like he would have gotten along really well with Michael Knowles. You know, they would have, they would have, they would have had drinks. They would have loved each other. Uh, Possibly in a gay way. I don't know. Um, (laughs) And the thing that's sort of interesting about Swan, too, is he served three months and then he started petitioning the president, Grover Cleveland at the time, um, for clemency. And he was the first American ever to take specific legal steps to try to defend 
his right to gather with other queer people. Like wow. he was the first one to fall into the system and then fight back against the idea of suppression and police violence and all of that. And he had a, a remarkably, um, a remarkably big support network in Washington, DC. Um, he was popular, right? I mean, it didn't work. The, the, like the, the president never even saw it. And the U S attorney, um, referred to Swan as having been convicted of the most horrible and disgusting offenses known to law. So disgusting that it could not be named. Um, so like, sounds about right. <laughs> it didn't work. Um, you know, so Cleveland was like, to the character of your friends, we think we're going to leave you in jail. Um, but he tried, like he was the first one to really like raise public awareness and really try to fight back against this system. And that, you know, that's like the thing that's interesting about drag is that like, yes, it's a performance and it's fun and it's campy, but it also has an enormous political element because of this claiming of space and claiming of community Um, You know, as we move into um, the 20th century in particular, um, especially as we move like into the like the post-World War II years, um, when people are sort of trying to queer people are sort of trying to figure out new ways to be in community, Um, actually, especially men returning from the war who had all of these intense experiences while they were overseas, both with their fellow soldiers or with, um, you know, sex workers in Europe. And they just, men, queer men learned a lot about themselves during World War II. And then yeah. they came back to the States and sort of had to try and figure out how to be in community again, um, or new ways to be in community, I guess I should say, that wasn't just being in the closet again. Right. And, you know, so as, as drag rose up, you know, through the fifties and sixties, um, I feel like we have to do a whole other episode on like, like drag houses and how that whole culture evolved. Yeah. Um, but it really became this place that was both art and performance and entertainment and community and political activism and this, um, you know, subversion of norms and this really powerful way to say, this is who we are. And, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. And and because it is such an inherently public performative, you know, form of art, right. For, for a very long time, uh, you know, queer people were in the closet, even if they, you know, had, you know, Boston marriages or, or things like that, where you had two women living together or two men, you know, living together, uh, they kept it to themselves. It was within, between their relationship, maybe their family, maybe their friends, but they were not making a spectacle of it because they, there were laws and, and there were social problems that would come with that. Uh, and so, you know, you have, you know, historians who are like, oh, they were best friends. You know, they lived together their whole lives and they had a named Sappho and they were best friends. I'm like, their dog was named Sappho, buddy. They weren't <laughs> best friends. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is a situation, right? So they had been hiding themselves, hiding their identity for so long in order to get by. And then you just have, you know late 1800s you just have these people who are like hmm we're just going to be very publicly queer and very publicly go against uh you know gender roles and and completely throw the system into into 
disarray and chaos. Uh, and, you know, we're going to be public about it, which is going to change everything about how the queer community, you know, live their lives at, at that point, basically. Yeah. And, you know, drag, um, drag also is a thing that sort of, you know, it's, it started um, among formerly enslaved black men in the U S it moves through the Harlem Renaissance. Um, you know, and by the time you get to like the sixties, it had really been co-opted by largely white gay men. Um, cause drag Kings are obviously a thing, but they didn't really start to rise to prominence as far as I understand it until like the eighties is when you start to really see drag Kings. So largely we're talking about white men. Um, and the, like the whole system of, you know, drag houses and all of that came out of the racism of drag balls in the sixties in New York city, because there was a drag queen named Crystal LaBeja who was, um, you know, at the time drag was not as, um, exaggerated as it is now. Like now when you think of drag Queens, you think of like divine and you think of like, you know, big hair and lots of glitter and, you know, colorful eye makeup and eyelashes for days and all of that. Drag was not like that in the sixties. It was much more about, it was much more like a, like a, like a Miss America pageant. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a little bit more about passing, although I'm hesitant to say that because none, like they weren't trying to be women, but the beauty standards they were trying to meet in these pageants were the beauty standards applied to white cisgendered women. So less exaggerated. They weren't trying yeah. to over-exaggerate the... the, the yeah, style. they were. I mean, the 60s were an exaggerated time. Like, we've all yeah. seen beehives. So, like, you know, they, they were that exaggerated. Yeah. Um, but they were incredibly racist. A lot of them were being judged by very white beauty standards, mm-hmm. um, which gave drag queens, uh, black drag queens and drag queens of color, um, pretty much no shot. Um, yeah. And Crystal LaBeja was... Um, a Latina drag queen who had actually managed to make it pretty deep into the um, mostly white, um, you know, drag competition space. And, um, you know, there she was in this competition and there's a, a great documentary about it. And, and like, she came in fourth and a woman who was still in the top three or a drag queen, I should say, who was still in the top three, like hadn't even bothered to wear a wig. And like, like it's perfectly made a perfectly pretty woman, but like, no, like just not even on Crystal's level at all. Uh, she just snapped. She walked right off the stage and, and just, and like, and it's amazing because there was a documentary crew there at the time um, and captured her whole, like, she is the reason that drag queens read people now. Like anytime you see a drag queen read someone that is all inspired by Crystal LaBeja. Um Yeah. But, but the roasting of, of, uh, of people, like, I, I mean, just, I mean, it just, just, it's amazing. Uh, but she founded the first drag house with, um, you know, she, with another friend. She became the first drag mother. And it was sort of a, the drag houses served two purposes. One was to reclaim drag from the white people who were destroying it, honestly, was to bring drag back to, they called it uptown drag. So back up to Harlem and to those neighborhoods that were largely populated by black people and other people of color. Um, And it was also to form families, right? Like they're literally drag families and the drag mothers were, um, were there to be mentors, not just in the art of drag, but you know, every lost queer kid who showed up and, you know, had been um, either kicked out of or had chosen to leave their family of origin, you know, whatever, um, and it became this really, really powerful social network um, that all sprung out of the drag community. 
Yeah, to have these these people who are, have a space to go when you've been kicked out or a space to go where you can express yourself and not feel, you know, feel like a like a freak or feel, you know, bad about who you are. Uh, yeah. That's, a, again, a huge, powerful thing in, in the organizing of the queer community in into, you know, the, the, the queer civil rights movement of the, you know, the 70s and 80s. Uh, it's a major, major player in that. So really, we have uh, – we have drag queens to thank for a lot of, you know, the yeah. advancements in uh, in queer culture. Uh, yeah, I mean, and just in culture in general. So the yeah. other thing that happened with the formation of um, drag houses is it really changed, like, uh, quote-unquote, uptown drag really changed the face of drag. Because that's when you start to see all of these drag balls that have all kinds of wild categories, right? You know, like, formerly they were, again, very much like Miss America you know, pageants. So they had like a limited number of categories. Um, but once they start dividing themselves up into drag houses and doing these like sort of huge and elaborate balls, um, it really upped the performance aspect of drag because it was no longer just walking across the stage, you know, like certainly there was walking up and down a, an aisle, but there was also, um, all kinds of elaborate, you know, performance that got added to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and pretty much everything that was cool in the eighties or nineties started in drag houses. Like I have, I'm doing an episode on yester queers next week about Willie Ninja and the house of Ninja who's the reason we have voguing. Like he nice. is the father of voguing. Um, so, you know, so pop all culture of that is, yeah, is all tied into this. Definitely. So it's yeah. not just, uh, one second, there's a train going by. So, <laughs> have to cut this part of the audio so you know uh yeah so uh yeah i mean we're yeah there's a lot to thank them for a lot to and it's uh, one of the big reasons why i mean not just for civil rights reasons but it's one of the reasons why we need to be you know organizing behind these movements now to keep you know keep uh, drag queen safe keep trans people safe all of these people have had such a huge impact on our society uh, not the drag and trans <laughs> like, is the same thing, but there is like a certain element of this, uh, of of both that are coming into what's going on with the culture war right now. But uh, I mean, drag, the history of drag in a lot of ways is the history of, or at least the foundation of queer culture in the United States. Like you cannot separate those two things. No, um, yeah, you know, certainly queer culture is much you know, wider and broader and more complex than just drag, but it, it, it is one of the cornerstones of everything that makes up American queer culture today in 2023. Um, And I think it's easy for people, even in the queer community to dismiss it as just sort of like silly and frivolous, um, you know, just sort of like fun and sure it's all of those things, but also, um, it is connected to this very, um, this very deep and important part of our history, you know? And there's also like, there just isn't one, there's just not one kind of drag or like one way to do drag. You know, there's like, there's drag story hours. There's the sisters of perpetual indulgence who are the drag nuns who do enormous amounts of good works they do and they're absolutely just hysterical and the nicest people you ever meet every time i've ever had any interaction with them i'm like they're just so nice (laughs) piss off the catholic church so you You know know, all good i love that you know there's just lots there's lots of ways to do drag and be drag and understand drag and i think 
one of the things that frustrates me the most about, you know, the way conservatives and, you know, Christo fascists in this country, fascists talk about drag, like it's clear that they just don't have a clue what it is at all. And I'm not sure they would care if they did, but like, could you at least try, (laughs) try, maybe go to a performance. I don't know. Just (laughs) <laughs> we watch the birdcage for God's sakes. Yes, just try one thing. Just try one thing. Oh yeah, we were talking a little bit about like the post World War II period earlier before we got like we kind of skipped forward into the sixties and seventies, which is totally <laughs> not a problem. Uh, we just you know we backtracked to get back into things. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I think it's really because you said that, you know, after World War Two, we start to get more people who are experimenting with drag. But also because it is the post-war period, there's even more pushback against people, uh, you know, experimenting with anything. That's not a, a strictly, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, you know wasp family unit. Right. And yeah. uh, so we start to see a lot more. I, I would I hesitate to say a lot more violence against the drag queens and queer community because there certainly was violence before, but mm-hmm. it is more focused. I think after after World War II, uh, this particular uh, Rusty Brown as uh, a, a a woman who was interviewed for a uh, for a project on queer history, and she was talking about the fact that uh, she originally started dressing as a man uh, because she lost her job at during World War II. Uh, at the end of the war, she lost her position as a machinist, and so she began disguising herself as a man so that she could get a job again. Uh, and then after that, she does go on to become a drag king. This is, you know, she's one of the earliest drag drag kings of that era. And uh, and she mentioned in her interview where she talks about what they call the three-article rule, uh, which was that people were arrested for not wearing at least three pieces of of gender appropriate attire basically uh this was not a rule that actually existed there's no law on the books about it um uh, seems like it, maybe it was more of a term that was used by the gay community as sort of a uh, a general warning like oh don't you know don't break the three article rule um but this becomes a major problem right so it's it's not at this point now it's not just about people who are cross-dressing not just about drag queens uh it's about anybody who chooses to dress any differently than what their gender is expected to dress as. And I just think like, I don't wear skirts. I don't wear dresses. I would have done very poorly in this, this time period. Uh, and I'd mentioned earlier about the woman who had to have her papers, right? She had to have this report from the police and a very similar thing happened in uh, 1968. This man, Martin Boyce is on his way to a Halloween party uh, and he's dressed as Oscar Wilde, which Okay, cool. It's a cool outfit. I love it. It's great. But cop... Famously a man, Oscar Wilde. (laughs) Right, it's great. Great choice. But a cop actually collars him and says, hey, your costume is too feminine, which, first of all, it's Oscar Wilde. I don't understand, but whatever. (laughs) Whatever. I don't know what the costume looked like. Boyce has an argument with the cop, and he, again, it's a papers thing, right? He pulls out the receipt. He's carrying the receipt for the costume from a unisex store, uh, basically to prove that he is not wearing something that doesn't fit his gender. And it's crazy that he had to have papers for this. Uh, but the thing that really gets me about it is that the police officer then turns to a gang of angry young men and says, he's all yours. And the cop leaves because he legally can't do anything about it. But he's going to allow a gang to beat this man up. Luckily, apparently, the gang was not very invested in uh, <laughs> like in queer bashing that particular night, uh, and they let Boyce go. But 
it was a very common thing during this period of time, which is, of course, what's going to lead us to, you know, the Stonewall uprising, uh, this harassment over gender norms and things like that. And Boyce actually was at Stonewall as well. So it's kind of a, a neat, you know, full store, full circle story for him where he had this harassment happen. And then he's there at the moment, uh, which, you know, kind of explodes into the, into the gay rights movement. Uh, but it is just such a dangerous thing. And honestly, we have seen discussions about carrying your papers, right? Yeah. We've seen discussions about this uh, going on with, you know, current drag bands, current, uh, current, you know, transgender bands, things like that in America, where they're talking about like, oh, well, you know, you just carry proof that you've had your surgery. Why should I have to carry proof? I shouldn't have to give you my papers. That's what kind of fascist state is this? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so fascinating. And I think there's a lot of parallels between America after World War II and where America is right now. Mm-hmm. Because basically what happened after World War II is, um, you know, we had a, a several year span where most of the men in the country were someplace else. Um, and a lot of them who were in Europe were either having experiences with their fellow soldiers, because that's what happens when you're lonely and think you're going to die every other minute, or they were having um, experiences with European sex workers. They were being exposed to European ideas about sex and sexuality. So you have all a huge chunk of American men overseas somewhere fighting a war, but also learning a lot about themselves and their likes and the desires and like the world, you know, at large. And then you have a bunch of women and girls who are suddenly pulled out of their sort of like support positions Mm -hmm. and put into jobs as, you know, factory workers and machinists and car mechanics and all kinds of things. So they are suddenly, um, you know, pulled out of this stereotypical behavior pattern. And then the war ends and, you know, everyone who wasn't killed comes home and all the women are expected to go back into the kitchen or back to being, you know, secretaries or, you know, nurses or whatever. And so it wasn't just the queer community, I think, that they were trying yeah. to um, rein in. It was everybody. It was like, all right, yeah. we have those weird war years and I'm glad everyone did what they had to do. But like, OK, women back in the kitchen, men back to stoicism, you know. And back so, to the normal, you know, day-to-day yeah. of what things are supposed to be like. Yeah, um, it's like it all just got know. a little too crazy. Let's just dial it back. Um, and in some ways, I think that is very parallel to what's going on now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I'm Gen X. I am, you know, almost 46 years old. So I, um, I watch the generations coming up behind me who have a very different understanding of gender and sexuality and, you know, the ways in which people interact, which I think is wonderful. Um, but it is terrifying to people who want this country to run on the, you know, straight, narrow Christian tracks that they've been trying to keep, quote unquote, keep it on. Um, you know, for decades. And so I think we're in a similar place now where it's like, this is all getting a little crazy. So we just got to really, you know, reel it back in. And it's like, it's Mm -hmm. not, you can't, you can't put toothpaste back in a tube. That's not, it's not, it's not going to happen. We're not going to suddenly stop living our lives or stop doing the thing, you know, stop expressing ourselves or things like that. Yeah. And trans people and drag queens are two such obvious targets. Because like a drag queen, you can spot a Drag queen at 50 yards, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, big hair, big boobs, glitter, drag queen. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't think that that's true of trans people, although people always like to say, well, I can tell. No, you can't. You really can't. <laughs> Literally cannot. Um, but they feel like an obvious target. Well, yeah, um, and that's a really unfortunate thing, which I'm going to have to do a whole episode at some point on just trans trans issues at some point. Uh, not that it's really my area to talk about, but trans history would be a really interesting. Bring thing. another guest. That also is another? not my area. Yeah, we'll find somebody. We'll find some somebody else on TikTok. Um, somebody will be, somebody will be available for it at some point. Uh, but yeah, it's a very unfortunate thing, especially since there are elements of the queer community, which are not supportive of transgender people, which I, I don't understand turfy LGB people. Like I don't get it. Doesn't make any sense to me. Again, like whole other episode. I understand how and why turfs came to be. I do not understand how they continue to proliferate here in 2023. Yeah, and I, I, it's very difficult for me to understand specifically TERFs who are also queer. Like, it, it just seems so counter to the idea of, like, look, you're, you've been oppressed. You know what this is like. Why would you perpetuate that? Uh, but there's yeah. lots of people who, you know, have been, who have multiple intersecting identities. And, right. um, you know, it's this, like, it's this pernicious desire to be as close as possible to like the ruling majority intersection of identities, right? Like to be as close as possible in this country to being a straight white cisgendered man, you know? Um, so that it's just, it's, it's just pernicious, but yeah, it's the, as, as much as we have to, you know, offload in order to maintain our proximity to, you know, what we view to be like the ultimate power um, power dynamic in this country, which is, I, it's exhausting. It never it's very exhausting. That was, you know, like you're just, uh, you, you have to be constantly fighting all the time, which is and the thing that is great. The thing that's so tough about, um, you know, what's going on in drag right now is that or with drag, not in drag, drag Queens are fine. It's <laughs> things happening to drag Queens. <laughs> Drag queens will always be fine. The drag queen community is doing great. It's just the outside. Of- yeah, it's yeah. just everybody else. Everybody else. Um, is It's just like, you know, there's that famous poem and the poet's name is escaping me right now, but that was written, you know, uh, after World War II of the first they came. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, look, they're going to take drag queens first and then they're going to take as many transgender people as they can find. But like, they're coming for all the rest of us next. Yeah, all the exactly. rest of us who are not straight, white, cisgendered men. I, we're all next. Yeah. So there is no amount of tossing your fellow members of the queer community under the tracks that is, or under the bus that is going to save you when it's your turn to lay down on those tracks. It just right. They, they'll come for you. If you don't fall in line, they will come for you. It's going to be you know, trans people, it'll be drag queens, it'll be the queer community, it'll be feminists, whatever, they will come after you and try to, you know, try to restrict your rights, try to, I mean, we're seeing that kind of converging on it from multiple sides. But that's, again, another episode. I've already done an episode on, on you know, the no fault divorce thing and things like that. Um, we could talk about this. Might be back for so many episodes. So many things to talk all about. You know. uh, yeah, no. So there's a lot. There's a, a lot going on here, and a lot of it ties into just this general idea of people who don't want anything outside the heteronormative 
you know, way they grew up. To and they want it to stay. They also want, like, they want these things, but they want them to stay contained, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I know you and I talked about drag um, in, like, movies and, yeah. um, you know, other sort of forms of modern entertainment. Like, if you look at, you know, Tango and Cash, uh, to Wong Fu, you know, any of that, mm-hmm. those are all fine. You know, yeah. it's mostly straight actors playing drag queens, which at the time they were cast was not as much of a thing as I think it would be now. Yeah. Um, But like, that's fine. They just wanted to stay like on the screen, self-contained. They wanted to stay as like in the way that we find palatable and entertaining. You know, they just, they want to, they want this one little piece of it, but not the whole, um, not the, the whole history and majesty, majesty of what drag is in this existence of human beings that have it. Yeah. (laughs) Like uh, I, you know, it's like love the sinner, hate the sin thing kind of like, or, you know, as long as it's a punchline, as long as it's something you can kind of giggle about in a, in a movie or whatever, then it's okay. It's fine. But if it's goes further than that, if somebody wanting to be taken seriously and actually want to, you know, subvert, uh, that becomes an issue, right? So that becomes- they'll watch RuPaul's Drag Race, man. Which huh? and no shade to Drag Race, I think that show is amazing, and I think it has done amazing things for putting drag mm-hmm. into the American um, popular conscience. Yeah, definitely it has. But yeah, it's it's still one of those things where it's like, oh, it's okay to watch RuPaul's Drag Race, but we still, you know, but that's just fi- it's like fiction. It's just in the TV, so yeah. it's not real. Yeah, yeah. kind of goes into that. So I'm sure we could go on and on about this, but I, uh, I'm not even sure how long we've been recording for. So I'm not sure how, how long the episode's going to be. <laughs> I, mean, I wasn't keeping a clock on it. That's uh, that's okay. uh, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of good examples of, you know, of handling of drag and handling of gender nonconformity in Hollywood. There are good examples of it. We mentioned the birdcage earlier, uh, you know, the, the 1982 remake of Victor Victoria is a really, really neat look at, you know, subverting expectations and, and, and uh, gender roles. And of course, you know, being a drag king, right? That's a that's that, that's kind of one of the early uh, pieces of media about drag kings since it is a remake of an older film. Uh, you know, yeah. So there are a lot of good representations that are very serious and respectful of the art form in a general sense. Uh, so at least it's not always just a punchline like it is taken yeah, and even like in some films, yeah, yeah, and especially sort of like drag in particular in films, like even when there is a punchline, it's still treated seriously. Yeah. Like the Birdcage is a really good example of that, the one yeah. with Robin Williams, um, where like that is a funny movie, and the drag queens are very often punchlines, but they are not the butt of the joke, right? They, they don't exist punchlines. just. Yeah, they don't exist just to be the punchline. And, and I yeah. think that's the important thing. Like, it's a story about them. And it's a story about, like, mm-hmm. they are real human beings in the movie. And so it it has a different vibe to it. Like, it's definitely comedy. But that doesn't yeah. mean it doesn't treat it seriously. So and about serious. Nathan Lane, you know, being himself. You mm-hmm. know, being in drag as his most authentic self in trying to navigate this very difficult Oh my gosh. (laughs) I love that movie. I need to rewatch it soon. I haven't watched it in a while. I definitely need to watch it again soon. But yeah, I mean, the drag band thing has been in the news almost constantly. uh, I would say it is probably one of the biggest issues on the docket right now. Um, Obviously, alongside other things like transgender issues, 
like uh, like abortion, like, uh, you know, school shootings. Right. Those are like the four main things that are in the news consistently. And what does that tell us about our society? Right. Like, (laughs) don't like that so much. Uh, I know that uh, I think the, the the last time I looked at it, the American Civil Liberties Union is tracking nearly 500 anti-LGBTQ bills in the U.S. right now. Um, they categorize they're categorizing them as a malicious attempt to remove LGBTQ people from public life, and a big part of that is the drag bans. Uh, they just don't want us to be there. They don't want us to be visible, right? Um, just. Go, go back in the closet, stay in there. Yeah, don't want us to be visible, don't want us to live authentically. You know, I had a moment um, the other night where I I was just sort of overwhelmed by the human cost of all of this. Um, all of, like, the queer community specifically and majority, um, Black members of the queer community, Indigenous members of the queer community, other queer people of color, have been paying this human cost for decades, literal decades. We lost an entire generation to a plague that nobody cared about for much too long. Um, And every so often I am just so overwhelmed by just the, just the naked cruelty of it all, you know, because it's, I feel like, you know, that Irish sort of blessing slash curse of may you live in interesting times. Yeah. You read about this stuff in history books and you're like, um, you know, God, that must have been awful. What was that like? And it's just sometimes it's overwhelming. Sometimes I still have to pay the power bill. Like it's just we're in such a very strange time. Um, And I think it is so is more important now than ever. I always think queer history is important. (laughs) So I am a public historian. But now more than ever for our community to understand the roots of where we've been, what battles we have already fought and won and lost, um, and what that means about where we are now. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I also think that's a great spot to kind of end us on uh, today. I think it's a, it's a good, you know, good message to end on today. Uh, so, yeah, I'm definitely going to have you back, though, because this is great. It's like having a conversation with a friend and then recording it so I have I can just put it out there and not have to you know write a whole script or anything. It's wonderful. <laughs> I love doing podcasts, so I am always happy to come back. All right. I'll let you know. I'll let you send you the notes on the next one on cross-dressing. We can, we can work on that one next. Uh, yeah. So I get to talk about my very favorite thing, which is the American frontier at the end of the 1800s. I love that period too. It's fantastic. Getting to talk about that, like talking about women who like, you know, cut their skirts off and just wore their bloomers. I think it's hilarious. It's wonderful. <laughs> I want to definitely want to talk about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to hear both of us bitch about history today. Not just one person this time. Um, If you're listening, you probably already know where to find me online. Uh, But in case you don't, you can find all the links to my socials on bitchyhistory.com. So it's all the links you can possibly want. Uh, And you can also find a bio for Amanda with links to her socials as well. Uh, But let them know where they can find you online here. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok as yesterqueers. Easy enough, easy to find, right? It's easier than spelling my first name, which, you know, trying to tell people, find me as Professor Meredith. They're like, I don't know how to spell Meredith. I, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> That's a point. Yeah. Well, yes, they're queers. There mm-hmm. you go. And there'll be a link on the website, which bitchy histories, that's not bitchyhistory.com isn't hard to type in. That one's fine. Just tell you Professor Bitchy History from now on. Uh, yeah, I'll just do that. That's wonderful. That'll work fine. <laughs> yeah. Until my students actually start calling me that at the college, and then it won't be fine. <laughs> 
Well, they already call you that, Meredith. They probably do. So as a brief reminder, Bitchy History is going to be transitioning to one episode a week from July 3rd onward. Uh, I mentioned this on Monday's episode. Uh, the two-episode week has just been a lot of work to keep up with, uh, especially when still running my research consulting business. And unfortunately, that work is the more important one since it's the one that, you know, pays for the podcast, pays to keep my lights on, pays for my car, pays for my food. Those seem to be important things. Uh, so the show will still be out on Mondays at 8 a.m. Eastern, but there will not be a Thursday episode. So we're just going to go to one episode a week. Uh, and as a final reminder, tomorrow, June 23rd, I'm going to be hosting a TikTok Live with several uh, historians, archaeologists, mother humanities experts, including Amanda, most likely if you're going to be there. I will be there. Be there uh, at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, which uh, the event is called History and Drinks. And the joke right now is that we're doing drunk history the right way, uh, the, you know, the show drunk history. Uh, so we're doing it the way it should be done. So put that in your calendar and come over to my TikTok for that. It'll be hosted on my page. So, all right. And Bitchy History will be back on Monday. We're going to be exploring what life was like in the colonial American period in the early 1700s. Uh, we're, we're inching in on finally getting to, you know, the American Revolution. We've only got 70 more de- or seven more decades left to cover uh, <laughs> before we get there. <laughs> we'll get there sometime. In July, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Yeah. And I'll see you back here on Monday. Mm -hmm.